Another day Another dollar Makes you wonder where your money went You can scream And you can holler Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't dictate it, is almost always the case during my 50-mile commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas. Today is once again beautiful, folks. The clouds in front of me are gorgeous, 67 degrees, blue skies. The garden is really starting to come alive. We're getting just a little rain here and there now. Uh, this may turn from what was a rough gardening season for me to one of the best ever, uh, given the way things are starting to go now. But we won't count any chickens before they hatch, so to speak. Anyway, why do I mention the weather? Because you guys are my friends, and friends occasionally talk about the weather. But let's get on with the show today. Uh, let's start out with the house cleaning. Uh, first of all, if you think you get more than 25 cents in value per episode of the Survival Podcast, consider joining the member support brigade and supporting the show with a contribution of either $5 a month or $50 a year it is your choice. For those of you that hate PayPal for whatever reason and want to pay by check or money order that option is available as well you can find a link in today's show notes or you can find a banner for the member support brigade at the survivalpodcast.com. Click on that and you can go ahead and sign up and become an instant member and get that exclusive content Uh, Next, if if you like what you hear on the show and you want to support it another way, one way is to do business with our sponsors. Uh, Our sponsor of the day is Ready-Made Resources. You'll find their banner on the side as well. Check them out. They have some really cool stuff. Um, Next, I will be at Dirt Time 09, Wilderness Way's big event, end of August, San Bernardino, California. Don't know if any room is left to be there. Last I heard, we had like 15 people that are TSP listeners uh, that are coming, so we'll have a pretty big contingent there. My wife's pretty insistent that even though we haven't done the order uh, t-shirts by mail, that we should bring a big box of uh, TSP t-shirts out there and uh, hawk our wares, so to speak. So we'll probably do that because Mrs. Spirigo generally gets what she wants. All right, wrapped up house cleaning today in two minutes, 21 seconds. Let's get into the show. What is today's show about? Well, I've been having so much fun doing these listener question shows. And after I asked yesterday for more questions, they just came in. Uh, I've got, I think, nine questions that came in yesterday. And that's what today's show is going to be. I'm going to answer them, go through them, expand on my thoughts of them. And uh, I don't know. I mean, this is getting to seem like a cool series. Maybe I could finish the whole week with this. Since I did one last Friday, we had Monday off. You know what? That would be five shows. So if you guys can keep sending me questions uh, for two more shows, we'll have a five-part series that are all questions and answers. That might be a good uh, grouping of shows to uh, to share what the show's really about with other people and not go deep into one single topic. So keep sending them. Jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Subject line question for Jack. Uh, today's first question was basically, this person said that they uh, were buying a new piece of property, they were getting ready to move there, and they decided they wanted to make the whole thing into a permaculture system. Uh, they don't want to water, feed, or care for grass. Hey, hoorah, good for you. 
you. Uh, wish I had the stones to pull that off here in Arlington with my third of an acre, but wanting to sell it next year, I don't think I have enough time to make it right. So I don't. So good for you. Glad you found a place that you're going to settle down at for a while and do that. But what they wanted to know is what's the best way to get rid of all the sod? What do I do? I compost it? Do I just turn it over? Do I leave it there? Let me tell you what I would do. I would find a good, inexpensive source of... um uh, organic mulch from as many different uh, things as possible like not all pine, not all oak, not all leaves, not all wood maybe you find uh, bulk places to buy it from two or three different sources and I would have a huge giant monstrous pile of mulch delivered to your property and then I would go around to uh, through the neighborhoods during trash day and I'd pick up every cardboard box I could find I would go to stores, I would find as much cardboard as I could get I would lay that cardboard down on top of the grass, and then I would put about four to six inches at least of mulch on top of it. And I would just mulch the crap out of it. I wouldn't put a spade in the ground for a second, and uh, it will only take a couple months before that cardboard will begin to decay. The grass will die almost overnight, and the ground will begin to heal itself from the damage that's been done by the carpeting of a lawn, which is there for aesthetics rather than reality. And when you want to plant something, I'd chop a hole right through the mulch, right through the cardboard. I'd dig a hole and shove it in that hole and put the dirt back in and the mulch back around it. That's what I would do. It's the easiest, most expedient way that I know of to get what you want out of your system. Uh, There's a saying by uh, Bill Mollison, digging causes work and work causes digging. Digging causes weeds and weeds cause work. You have to break the cycle. If I was going to convert an entire lawn, that's how I would do it. By the way, uh, one of my heroes, Jules Dervais, Farmer D, out in SoCal, uh, that grows uh, you know several tons of food on a, a tenth of an acre. That's what he did with his lawn. He didn't dig it up. He mulched it. And he killed it with mulch. And he made it into something useful. So that's what I would do there. Uh, next question was uh, several questions. One was, I've never really mentioned any dogs on uh, the show. And I guess I haven't. If you've watched the videos, if you're an MSB member, uh, you've seen probably a lot of my dogs. Uh, my, my Black Lab and my uh, Husky. So that was the next question. What breeds do you have? Why do you have them? Um, I have a Black Lab and a Husky because when my uh, when we bought our first house, we told our son when we moved out of the apartment he could have a dog. We told him he could pick any dog he wanted as long as it was a rescue dog from the uh, pound. And when we took him down there, a Black Lab mix is what he picked, so that's what we got. Siberian Husky, also a rescue dog. We were at PetSmart one day getting stuff for the other dog. And uh, the American Eskimo Dog Rescue Society was there. And uh, I took one look at Lakota, as we came to call him. And decided immediately that he needed to be part of our family just because. And uh, I hate to say it, but Lakota is getting uh, very old. He's having problems with his kidneys. He probably won't be with us much longer. He's actually at a point now where he has to spend almost all his time outside because he's lost his uh, his, his house training uh, capabilities. Let's just put it at that. And uh, I hate to have him outside. We try to bring him in in the hot parts of the day. But other than that, he has to be outside. But those dogs were not chosen for security. They were not chosen for uh, protection. They were chosen and simply and solely uh, because we wanted them as companion animals in our home here in Texas. That said, our black lab Blackie, I don't know who he, I don't know how likely 
he would be to bite, but if you're at the front door and he doesn't know who you are, um, the noise that the animal makes, you would think Cujo's on the other side. So uh, he has the ability to alert us, and he has the ability to uh, be a deterrent simply by the noise. And most people that look at him, since we've determined what he's mixed with, is probably Rottweiler. And folks, i got a little thing i got to deal with here. Um, I'm going to have to... Uh, I'm going to have to pull over as soon as I can. I'm going to pause the recorder, and then I'll tell you what's going on. Not a cop, don't worry. So, okay, back to the show, folks. Uh, having a glance in the rearview mirror, and the trunk had opened. And I was on a, an overpass, so I had to get clear of the overpass so I could get a clear place to pull over and shut it. Anyway, the dogs, uh, yeah, they were chosen just for companionship. Um, Black Lab Rottweiler mix. He's not, he's not a very aggressive dog, but he does have that alert and that protectionist uh, tendency. So he's, he's got some use there. Uh, both of them are getting older. We're looking at what dogs we'll actually replace them with. And I hate to lose an old friend, but one of the good, I don't know, good things, one of the, uh, the, the I guess the beauty in, uh, in taking an animal and, and, and giving it a great life and when it eventually has exceeded its life capacity is that it makes room for you to bring another animal into the home. My wife is deeply in love with German. And shepherds. Uh, part of this question was, what dogs do you think make good prote- dogs for protection around the home? I think a German Shepherd's hard to beat, folks, and uh, so that just happens to work out well there. And uh, if you've seen any of the pictures of Arkansas, we have what we call the vacation dogs up there. And those are one of our neighbors has two uh, now adult German Shepherds, and they're just beautiful, wonderful dogs. Very gentle animals, but when they see a stranger, they're immediately on alert. Uh, so we'll have to socialize our uh, new shepherd when we get them uh, with those two to make sure they all get along. It shouldn't be hard if we start doing that as a pup and the vacation dogs come down and visit us all the time when we're there. Um, so protection, German Shepherd, excellent dog. Rottweiler, excellent dog. Don't like Doberman Pinschers. I know somebody's going to tell me they got a great one. I'm sure you do. Overall, I think they're not as... Uh, is easy to control and keep calm. I, I don't like pit bulls. I think that there's a real problem uh, with that dog due to the breeding and what they were bred for. I wouldn't want them around kids. I know you're going to tell me you know a great pit bull. I'm just giving you generalizations about the breed. There's exceptions to every rule. Um, I, for protection, I, I would stick with you know if you what, what do police uh, have for dogs they use as guard dogs and for canine units. Uh, not for sniffing drugs, but really to do real police work, German Shepherds. And um, can you get a gun other than a Glock 40? Yeah. Can you go wrong with a Glock 40? No. Why do all the police use it? Because it works. That's my thought there. Now, the other thing was, what kind of breed for a hunting dog? Man, take your pick. Um, where I live in Arkansas, probably the best uh, hunting uh that a dog is allowed to go along with. You can't use a dog for a deer hunt in Arkansas. And I, I really am not a big fan of dogs for deer hunting. Uh, but is squirrel. I mean, there's long seasons. They're everywhere. So I'm going to get a little dog called a feist or a feast. I'm not sure exactly how you say it, but from the first time I saw them, I fell in love with them. Uh, they're kind of a, you know, look a little bit like a rat terrier, look a little bit like a Jack Russell, uh, but they're bred to run and tree squirrels. So that's what I'm going to get. So I think they're a great small game dog. If I wanted a versatile all-around hunting dog, 
my dog that I could take and hunt quail with one day, pheasants the next day with, and ducks and geese the next day with. Um, there's other dogs that you could say this about, but I don't think any are finer than a Brittany Spaniel. Uh, Brittany Spaniel was bred in France. It was a poacher's dog. Uh, back when the nobility owned all the land and peasants weren't even given the uh, honor of being allowed to hunt. So the peasants wanted to feed themselves and they wanted to hunt, so they wanted to breed a dog that could be used for anything so that whatever the opportunity was, the dog would be able to help them. That is the genesis of the Brittany Spaniel. And uh, because of that breeding, because of the fact that they were made to be that versatile, they have that versatility. So as a hunting dog, you know, if I had a one-dog-do-it-all uh, approach, Brittany Spaniel. Um, and uh, I think that kind of wraps that question up. Let's go on to the next. I got a question from somebody that said basically, hey, um, could you set up a situation where you had a rifle, a pistol, and a carbine all of the same caliber and have a complete gun battery? Um, and then they said, well, since you're so big on rimfires, I guess not. And I, yeah, I, I would say that probably not. I, I think that you probably want at least a 22 rifle in your, your arms assortment. And, uh, no, even if you're going to be a very small number of weapons that you make room for and budget for the 120 to 150 bucks that'll buy you a decent rimfire rifle. Uh, you can buy a, uh, a Marlin Model 60 for around 150 to 170 dollars. You can find used ones at pawn shops for 120. So definitely you want to include the 22. Now the, the the caliber question though is a good one. First on the rifle and carbine. Let me put it to you this way. Remember always, a carbine is nothing but a short rifle. If you put a handgun cartridge in a rifle, it has advantages with that longer barrel, but the advantage has a ceiling, a limitation. So you take a 357 Magnum and you put it in a nice little carbine lever action, and uh, it's a 100-plus yard weapon. It's not something you're going to go take 250-yard shots with. It just doesn't have that capability. Hence, there's no real advantage into putting an extra six inches on the gun and weight and distance. So don't worry about then if you want to take that approach so much having a rifle, a carbine, and a handgun. Have a carbine, which is your rifle, and a handgun. If I were going to do that approach, and I, I really sort of have, um, my choice of caliber would be 44 Magnum. And uh, there's there's a reason behind that. There's several reasons. One is, if I really wanted to uh, to use the the caliber to hunt deer and even elk or bear, large game, 44 Magnum, absolutely more than capable of it. But secondly, for all the hype about how heavy recoiling a 44 Magnum handgun is, if you take a shooter and you start training them with 44 special loads, move them into light Magnum loads, and then into full load. 44 Magnum is actually a relatively easy handgun to shoot, especially with a big, large frame revolver like a Ruger Red Hawk or a Ruger Black Hawk with some significant weight to it. So it's really not that hard to learn to shoot well with a handgun if you'll take the time to do it and if you'll step a shooter who's not accustomed to shooting heavy caliber handguns up into it instead of just putting them right in uh, to, to the middle of the mix, so to speak, and let them develop the control, the trigger squeeze, the lack of flinching, and the somewhat level of risk control that's necessary as you're firing a weapon with that level of recoil. Other side of the recoil, you put it in a rifle, a 44 Magnum hardly kicks at all. It's hardly noticeable. 
When you turn the muzzle, though, on a white-tailed deer and you do something like you hand-load a full load under the Hornady 265-grain flat point, which was a bullet that was actually made for the 444 Marlin, you put that in your rifle and you send that downrange and you hit a deer with it, they look like they were dynamited. Uh, the few deer I've shot with my 44 Marlin, uh, 44 Magnum, my Marlin lever gun, um, never moved. I mean, absolutely, boom, down. And uh, I shot a lot of deer with 308s and 306s, and I have to say, from my limited experience, uh, inside 100 yards, I would rather be shooting them with a 44 than a 30 caliber centerfire. The results are much more of a quick anchoring, and that's due to something called a Taylor knockout formula that I can't go into today. Maybe one day I'll talk about the difference between energy and knockout values. That might be a good show. Um, but... That's my choice. 357 Magnum is another good choice. I don't find it as effective as the 44. There's a lot of the same advantages. Easy to learn to shoot a handgun. Start with 38 Special. Move somebody up into light, you know, 38 plus P. Then put him into uh, full 357 Magnum. Very, very little recoil in a rifle with a 357 Magnum. 357 Magnum is actually in a rifle or a carbine, very flat shooting out to 100 yards. My son, uh, when he was young and couldn't really handle recoil yet, because he was just a little guy, we purchased uh, one of the NEF handy rifles in 357 Magnum, and you could absolutely smoke skeet sitting on a bank at 100 yards with it, so skeet, the clay birds that you throw, so those are the two calibers I would look at, the Marlin lever guns are the great uh, uh, rifle carbine side of that, handguns, there's tons of people that make both, uh, make revolvers in both, so that would be a good combo there, I would say if you want to complete that though at minimum you want to add to it a rimfire rifle and a shotgun and that's a pretty good outfit for most people now people will say well what about that long range 300 400 500 meter capability well you got to step up into more of a center file rifle cartridge for that but most people honestly from home defense to hunting don't need it if you're out in montana yeah you might be taking that 250 yard shot routinely at a mule deer but if you're hunting the eastern woods you're not taking 200 yard shots trust me i've hunted those woods my entire life and i've never been able to see 250 yards in eastern deer woods so and i think this guy was from uh from eastern canada and uh, your woods are pretty thick up there itself and unless you're sitting on a pole line or something you're not going to be shooting very far so that's a it's a good opportunity for you and you can always build from there that would be a great foundation to build from uh let's go to the next question uh guy asked me would i say a few words about what a new hunter is in for because i've talked about hunting some basics in the past this guy said hey people like me might want even to know about tanning hides using uh, the brains of the animal to tan hides well i'd like to know i didn't know you could do that uh never really i'm about to research that one so but what his question was really more um you know just people don't maybe understand okay i go out i hunt a couple seasons to uh, have no no success finally i like get 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 it down right, deer comes out, wham, shoot it down, everything's wonderful in, in the world, but now I got this dead, large animal, what am I going to have to do with it, and just, can I give people a kind of a dose of reality? Well, you, you have to cut it open, and you have to pull out its guts, and that's pretty graphic, but that's that's hunting. Hunting is very primal, and at some point, you have to accept the fact that what you're doing is you're killing. Now, you're killing in a very noble way, in a way that helps sustain life and makes you part of the ecosystem as a predator, which is part of what we are. 
We are a predator on this planet. We are also a caretaker. And we have to balance that. And that's that's the same balance that a person that keeps and loves chickens walks, but occasionally puts a couple of them in a killing cone and whacks their heads off and turns them into soup pots or fried chicken. All right? There's a place for both. When it comes to field dressing a deer, it is pretty graphic. What you'll end up doing is removing the genitalia, basically from a male, uh, or simply removing the udder from a female, a doe, and then you'll take your knife and you'll kind of pull the skin away from the belly a little bit and run your knife all the way up to the the, the xiphoid process where the ribs start, right at the sternum. And you'll do that just to cut away the hide. You'll then run that knife again, cutting a small hole into the, uh, the the cavity. And you do not want to cut the intestines open or the stomach open or the spleen open. So once you make your small hole, you'll actually insert your fingers there, follow the knife blade, again, right up to that point where the ribs start at the sternum. Uh, with the knife just underneath the muscle tissue. And at that point, you'll have access to everything in the lower abdomen, but you need to get into the chest. How do you get into the chest? You'll see the diaphragm, which are two muscles that look like curtains that come down on each side. You have to cut through them. When you do that, you'll hear a loud swooshing noise as air is let out of the chest cavity. And then you have to shove your hands all the way up, basically, to the inside of the throat. You cut the animal's throat, the thorax, or not the thorax, the uh, the but the, the windpipe from the inside, once you've done that, you can pretty much pull everything right out. And it's pretty gross. And you end up with blood all the way up to your armpits. And uh, some hunters carry long uh, plastic gloves uh, to keep the blood off them. I can't say that's a bad idea. But that's what you're in for. And that's why I say when you start hunting, find a mentor. Find someone that knows how to do that. Um, you can go get your deer butchered. I really really encourage you, if you're concerned with learning how to support yourself and be sustainable to learn how to do your own butchering, I have a beautiful solution for that. Find a, a place, a butcher that does butchering of deer meat uh, during deer season in your area and offer to work for two or three days for the man for free because you want to learn. You'll learn everything that there is about boning meat, cutting meat, skinning deer, all the other stuff, but you, you cannot take a deer and bring it back from the woods full of intestines and guts. They've got to come out. First of all, it's going to reduce the weight and make it easier to carry. Uh, I could do a whole show on things like, okay, you have an elk down. It weighs 700 pounds. You're one guy by yourself. You're going to have to pack it out in multiple packs. How do you quarter it and pack it out? Can't do that today. But you are in for something when you start taking big game animals. Squirrels, you can learn how to skin squirrels and rabbits and how to handle uh, doves and everything else on YouTube. You can learn that easy. It's not hard. It's not that much of a mess. You can put it in a paper bag and throw it away. What's left over, uh, you can throw it in the side of a field if it's a place where it's acceptable to do that. Um, not hard to do. Big game animals, different story. Get some help. If you go on guided hunts, if you're one of these people that, like, every year I go down to this ranch in Texas and they take care of everything for me, and you've never paid attention, pay attention. Ask your guide. Say, hey, look, I'm going to pay you the, your tip for doing all this, but I, I actually want to do it. Guide me through it. Learn how to do it. It's not the most pleasant thing in the world, but it becomes natural very, very quickly, even though it seems like it wouldn't. Let's go on to our next question. i got an interesting question. It's basically how, you know, being aware of all these things, planning for all these things, how do you keep yourself from going over the edge of survival? Basically, I was getting ready to go on a vacation, and... uh 
you know, the story came out about North Korea's nukes, and I started thinking about an EMP attack, and started thinking if I was that far away from home, and there was an EMP attack, and it shut down all the infrastructure, I wouldn't even be able to get home. And I almost thought about canceling my vacation. You know, how do you keep yourself from thinking that way? Uh, you do it the same way that you get up every day, get in your car, drive to work, and don't think about the fact that every day in your city, somebody probably dies behind the wheel. Uh, Dallas-Fort Worth has over 6 million people in the whole metroplex right now. And I guarantee you more than 365 people a year die on the roads just in Dallas-Fort Worth. So every day at least one person dies doing what I'm doing right now while I'm talking to you, driving to work. Some of them are idiots, but many of them are just driving along, and a 10-wheeler hauling gravel smacks into you, and you're dead, no matter how safe or secure your vehicle is. So you have a lot more of a chance of dying behind the wheel when you leave your home in the morning than you do of being stranded on a vacation because that just happens to be when the long-awaited EMP polls comes. Does it mean it can't happen? No. But you do not live your life in fear. That is not modern survivalism. What we do as modern survivalists is we prepare as best we can for each situation. And we do ask ourselves when we're going on vacation, is there anything extra I should take? Should I have some plans? If we did get stranded, what is my easiest route back home? If I can't get home, where would I go? Where's destination B? Where's destination C? Should I carry extra cash? All these, so what you figure out the best way you can prepare when you're going to be away from your, your, your security area, and then you do the best you can. And you just go on and enjoy your freaking vacation. That's what you do. And I can't make it any simpler than that. And I know that people worry about things, but people worry about all kinds of things. Am I going to get audited by the IRS? Am I going to lose my job? If I work really, really hard at work, am I just being a fool because I'm going to lose it anyway next week? And should I just slack off for the next two weeks? You know, there's all these worries, all these thoughts, all these things that people have. But in the end, all you can do is live your life, be a hardworking, conscientious individual that's prepared and planned, and hope for the best. And if the best doesn't come, be as prepared as you can to deal with the worst. Simple, easy, efficient. Don't worry too much. Uh, People overthink a lot of things. Uh, especially in this day and age. Next question was a pretty good one. Guys, let's say, you know what, I live in an apartment. I'd like to hear you say some more stuff about apartments. You know what, maybe I'll uh, I'll start putting together some material. I'll do a full show one day on just apartment living and, and how to prep in an apartment. And basically what he said, though, is, hey, could you uh, say some things about what an apartment dweller can do specifically to address their situation beyond things like a patio garden? We have a patio garden. We're growing some stuff. In fact, it was inspired by listening to this show. But, you know, I'm kind of frustrated with the limitations of that. What else can I do? Um, Let me give you a few ideas. Number one, uh, I think that apartment dwellers have a decided disadvantage if the shit is the fan. You have a very high population density. So I think one of the things that you should be thinking about is a very crystal clear evac plan. I think everybody should have that, but it may be more important for you than for other people. You may really want to think about getting yourself some sort of travel trailer slash RV. It's an intermediate step before you buy a home if you don't have home buying in your immediate foreseeable future, and many people in apartments right now do not. Even if it's something as simple and as inexpensive 
expensive is one of like the teardrop trailers. It's a nice sleeping place for two people, a bunch of stuff stored up. You could be pull it, pull it with a car. Uh, not the best mobile home to have, but at least you got something. That may be another thing. And I'll take it camping, and it's better than camping in a tent. Trust me. And there's a lot of modifications people make to those teardrop trailers, and there's a lot of uh, little internet communities about different things that can be done. I just watched a show on them, at least a part of a show. I DVR'd. I'll have to watch the whole thing. That's on unconventional RVs, and teardrops were part of it. One of the things the guy that ran the teardrop said is the biggest problem I had was changing my clothes inside here. So if you're camping somewhere, there's people around. Obviously, even if you don't care, you know people don't want to see you know you changing your clothes, and your wife probably definitely doesn't want to be exposed. And you don't want her exposed. So what this guy did is basically he rigged up this thing on the side of the trailer. You stuck a, a bar in there, and it basically held up what was like a shower curtain, and it folded up and it put away in its little cubby hole inside the trailer. But it made a place outside where you were concealed, where you could you know change your clothes and what have you. Uh, so that may be something to look at. Um, another thing to do, though, is probably to get to know your neighbors fairly well and know which ones maybe you could rely on and which ones you shouldn't rely on in advance. And if any of them might really be a threat, you might want to know that. So poke around a little bit, get to know the people that live next to you, above you, below you, left of you, right of you. Um, you probably really need to be one of these people that reaches out to your network and says, hey, uh, we're just wondering if something ever went wrong. We would bring some supplies. We would help out. But, you know, can you find a place that would, some place that would take you in? Um, that doesn't mean that you won't be able to bug into an apartment and do fairly well. But there could come a situation where you really need to bug out and you need to have a place to go. Uh, apartment living has some financial advantages. Definitely has some logistical advantages. Renting is a great way to go as you save up uh, to eventually purchase property when you can afford it without getting yourself into stupid, ridiculous debt. But um, it does have those limitations. So let me put my thinking cap on and see if I can come up with a whole show for you around apartment living. But those are just some of my initial thoughts. Let's go take the next question. And that was, guy emails me and he says, basically, I'm a little overboard on the paracord, the 550 paracord stuff. I'm on like 10,000 feet of it. And I've got this huge amount of paracord right now. And uh, I do a lot of stuff with it. He even offered me, if I'd send him my wrist size, which I'll have to measure because I don't know, to send me one of the little cool bracelets uh, of it um, but he said do you, can you think of some other you know maybe things I haven't thought of that you can do with paracord give us some ideas and I gotta say I'm not a huge like I've seen people that are like paracord geniuses they make all kinds of really cool crap out of paracord but let me give you a few ideas that I have uh, for, for, for paracord number one I just recently found out, because I have quite a bit of it laying around myself, that if you wanted to uh, put a square foot garden in and you didn't want to make wooden frames, you just wanted to take a staple gun and use strips of paracord to make your grid, works beautifully for that. You tie a knot in one end, you take a staple gun, you staple it down, you pull the knot up against the staple, you throw a few more staples down on it, you stretch it out with a knot on the other end, you pull it tight, throw some staples in it, let the tension pull the knot back up against the staples, throw a few more staples on both sides, staple down the far ends. That's what I've done two of my beds with uh, the square foot garden uh, grid squares in. Worked great for that. Uh, another thing I did with it recently, I put a new garden bed in. And uh, when I first put it in, my Siberian Husky decided that, you know, 
He was just fascinated with it. He just had to be inside of it. And uh, he kept walking in it. I come out and there's huge dog prints down into this, this beautiful soil that I just uh, that I just mixed up and put in there. And I'm like, once I start planting it, we can't have this. So I took four pieces of PVC pipe, stuck them in the ground on each four corners, and I put up basically a little, uh, little fence with two strands of uh, paracord going all around. It wouldn't physically keep him out, but it basically made him go, well, I can't get in there. It was a visible barrier that worked. I left it up for, oh, I don't know, about three weeks, took it down, and his fascination had ended. He really knew he wasn't supposed to go in there in the first place. Just because it was new, he had to go in there. So there's a couple garden uses for it. I'm also, I've also used it to uh, cut a little short piece of it and used it to tie my uh, my eggplant uh, to a stake because it's nice and thick. It won't cut into a vine or a plant, so it's actually good for tying up plants. So there's some gardening uses for it. Here's another uh, interesting idea. My buddy Hal Dodd uh, did the little four-way weave square thing and has a piece of it, oh, about four inches long hanging off his keychain. And his point was it's actually quite a bit of cord in a very small area, and I could take that and I could use that and unwind it and use it in any kind of a survival or just a practical situation where I needed several feet of cord. But yet it's always with me and it's in this little small bundle. So, you know, it's a great way to store it. Well, I looked at it and I said, you know what, if you made that sucker about eight inches long and about the last four inches of it inside it wove around a little thick piece of steel rod or a piece of lead or anything heavy and small and highly dense in the end of it that's a hell of a self-defense weapon hanging off your keychain because even his little six inch piece with nothing in it if you took it and smacked somebody with it it's going to hurt but if you put some weight inside that so I think you can make a pretty good slap club uh, with some paracord so those are just some ideas that I have how about this we're going to start a forum thread I'm not sure what board but I'll start a thread today. Use this for paracord and we'll see what everybody else can come up with. And if uh, you have an interesting use for paracord, post it in that thread. And hey, you know, post it, post it in the show notes as well uh, on the comment section on the blog uh, at the survivalpodcast.com. Okay, next question. I don't know how helpful I can be here. Uh, basically, it was how to find a, a survivalist significant other, a survivalist spouse, a survivalist wife, a survivalist husband, serious survivalist girlfriend, boyfriend, thing like that. Where do you where do you meet people like that? I don't know, man. I, I got to tell you, my personal experience is you kind of have to make your own. You know, just like people say, well, how do you get a woodshed? Where do you buy a woodshed? You don't buy a woodshed. You build one. You got to have to build your survivalist spouse yourself. Um, you, you, odds are a lot of people are already in a relationship and you, you're in a relationship with somebody that maybe thinks you're a little bit weird because uh, you actually pay attention to this stuff. And, you know, if you just start asking questions like, well, what would we do if? And, and put some really practical questions there. Both of us lost our jobs. Right? What would we do if this flu comes back and it is serious this time and they tell us to stay home for a month and we're not allowed to go out on the streets for a month? What will we do? And uh, usually it's the women that are harder to convert. Uh, there's some men out there. I've heard from some women going, man, I just gave my husband a bad attention to this stuff. Um, but usually women are actually pretty easy converts to most of this. If you're gentle with it and you don't use it, knucklehead guys, as an excuse to go buy a $1,600 rifle. You tell your wife, we need to be protecting ourselves. I'm going to go out and buy a uh, AR-15 all tricked up. It's going to be 1680 bucks. But I'll tell you what, if the zombies come, I'll be able to shoot them. Not going to work, folks. Now, 
for the single person that's saying, well, hell, why would I try to make my own? Where can I just find somebody that's already into this? Um, for you guys, there is a ladies survivors board. I don't know you can ask if there's any single ladies on there. That's really not the point of uh, TSP. I guess that it's the same way that you find somebody that's interested in anything. Go do things that people like that like to do. Um, find out if there's permaculture groups in your area. Go to permaculture groups. Now, odds are, you, guys, you'll find some lady that's all uh, airy-fairy with save the earth, save the whales, save the walruses, and let's eat granola, and, and you may not be able to bridge that gap. But, you know, people that are into gardening and permaculture are generally somewhat survivalist. If you if you look at any of the permaculture communities, you look at what they're talking about, they're always talking about sustainable living. Um, you know, some of the, some of the, the cities and towns, especially up north, have what they call rod and gun clubs. So they're basically a bar, but they're uh, they're really themed around hunting and fishing. And they're male dominated. But if you meet a woman there, I mean, I don't know. Uh, check out your local church. It's a great place to meet uh, meet other people. I I really don't know. I mean, I've never been in a situation where I just decided I was going to go out and find me a survivalist spouse. I had to make my own. So that's going to be up to you. But um, my biggest thing would be find out the activities that are available in your area that would attract people to think about self sufficiency and go there and just let nature take its course. And I believe a little bit in fate. And I believe that whoever you're supposed to be with, if you just start living your life the way you want, will end up showing up. And when you get to a point where you don't feel you need somebody else, you'll be able to be a good partner. And that's what's made my marriage work. And that's what's made me be able to create my own survivalist wife and flip my spouse, so to speak. Um, Last question before I wrap up here. Um, Basically, the person was asking me, do you think people should have a personal seed bank? In other words, it's great to garden and all, but if the shit really hit the fan and you ever bugged out or went and had to live somewhere else or, you know, had to just say, okay, fine, I've got five acres. I've only been cultivating a quarter of an acre of it. Now I need to clear off some land and start growing more. You're going to need to have seed. And uh, so should you have a seed bank? And my view is, yeah, it's a good idea. I keep quite a bit of seed. But this is what I have to be very, very clear on. This belief that some people have that if I go buy the survival seeds in a can, hermostatically sealed and all, that 15 years from now, I'll be able to go put those seeds in the ground and they'll all germinate and grow. Not so much. In fact, the most famous one, uh, the survival seed bank thing with this, the survival seed can, uh, somebody did a review on it. I'll try to try to find it. I, I can't, I read it very, very recently, but I didn't bookmark it or anything. And, uh, it basically, said that after three years, a lot of the germination rates dropped by as much as 50%. Uh, from a kind of an informal, you know, uh, not totally scientific controlled test. But that is a concern. Some of the seeds did very well three years old, but some of them didn't do so well. If you want to have a good seed bank, the best way to do it is to, one, buy fresh seed from time to time and replace what you have, just like you buy fresh ammo from time to time. If you don't plant it all because you just don't have enough room to plant it all, give some of it away and start saving seeds so that you're propagating your own. 
So start taking that approach. And I think another thing that makes a lot of sense is start learning about cloning. It's a lot faster to cut a vine off a tomato, give it a little bit of rooting compound, which you can either purchase, or rooting hormone, you can either purchase that, or actually, to make sure that you can uh, get roots to start, you can basically grind up the tips of willow. And it'll, it'll provide a great rooting uh, hormone uh, for you as well. And you can clone pepper plants and tomato plants a lot faster than you can grow them from pure seed. So learn about cloning as well because that will help make the most of your propagation efforts. And there's plenty of plants that can be cloned. You can even do things like, okay, you have a blueberry bush. And you want to make more blueberries. But you take a knife and you take some of the woody parts of the blueberry bush in, in the spring before the buds start to come out. And you, you remove the bark on the downward side of it for maybe an inch. And then you take a bag full or a, any kind of cloth or anything you can tie to that branch full of wet, moist material. And you tie it onto that scar uh, with a little bit of rooting hormone applied to it. And by the time that plant really starts to put leaves on, you open up that little sack, that little bag you've tied on there, and there's roots on there. You can now cut that stick loose and plant it and create a new bush with another type of uh, cloning technique. So I think that these things that involve propagation, they all go hand in hand, and they really need to uh, be handled in a way that's holistic in nature. Uh, Give me a second as I merge here folks before I wrap up today's show it's a crazy highway day anyway uh, so seed banks yes but make sure that you are rotating your seed that you're not if you have seed that you're just not growing enough of it you know donate it to find local farming groups permaculture groups if it's organic uh, natural seed that can be propagated with seed saving get involved in seed savers exchange make exchanges with other members but keep your seed fresh in your seed bank um yeah, you can take some pretty old seed and get it to grow sometimes, but if it comes down to the point where you're going to rely on it, right, you don't want to be maybe an if and having a 30% germination or a 10% germination rate and having to rebuild the entire seed bank uh, through several seasons where one crop failure could wipe out that particular variety of seed. Uh, so seed banks, yes. Just make sure that, uh, again, you're keeping fresh seed. And, again, I think getting involved with some local groups and donating what you don't use is a good way to uh, to use that seed that you don't plant. So with that, that's it. That wraps up another show. And uh, we're right at 40 minutes with nine questions. So nine questions is a good way to go. Got to tell you, though, I'm out of questions. If you guys want me to kind of do a five-part series of audience questions, I need more questions. Send me an email. Uh, put it in the subject line, question for Jack. And I'll try to get it on tomorrow's show. If I don't get enough questions, we'll do a new topic. Uh, but I really like doing this. I'd like to complete the week. And if you guys can help me with questions, uh, we'll go ahead and keep doing that. This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. You can scream and you can holler. It really doesn't matter because it all gets spent. 